You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit www.providencetx.org. Morning and welcome to Providence Community Church. We are so glad that you are with us this morning. If this is your first time at Providence, we want to welcome you. We hope that you felt welcomed when you walked in the door this morning. Um, feels like a really good day to gather just as we're all in kind of a reflective season with the, the year ending and the new year approaching tomorrow. So we just want to thank you for being here. Uh, my name is Lauren Schreiber and I serve at Providence as the director of the Providence Road Academy. Um, and Providence is a group of people formed on a simple vision to make the gospel unignorable in our city. And so uh, every Sunday when we gather together, we open our Bibles together because we believe that was given to us that we might know, worship, and obey Jesus. And so This morning, we are going to have a standalone sermon, so we're not currently in a series. We'll kick off our new series for the next year, um, next Sunday. Um, So we're going to be reading from Joel chapter 2 this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, we're going to ask that you turn there with us. Um, If you didn't bring a hard copy of the text, but you'd prefer to be in one, we do have some Bibles under the seats, so grab one. Um, And if you don't own one, you're welcome to take that one home um, today as a gift from us. So again, this morning, we're going to be in Joel chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 12 through 27. So once you're there, if you're able, would you please stand as we read God's word together? Providence, hear the word of the Lord. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people. Consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people, and the Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will arise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vat shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else, and my people shall never again be put to shame. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. 
Good morning to you. I want to welcome you to Providence. Happy New Year's Eve. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If it's your first time, thanks for making us a part of your week. We're really glad that you're here. We hope you enjoy yourself this morning. Um, like Lauren said, we're preparing for the new year. If you're a member here at Providence, then you know that in the month of January, we've set out to fast. Uh, and, and my intention this morning is to kind of lay the groundwork for that fast uh, that our elders called for the month of January. So you should have gotten an email about that. If you haven't gotten it yet, either it's on the way or look in your spam and <clears throat> no judgment from me because I'm terrible at emails. But it is informative, so check it out. Um, now, the Bible's filled with a lot of details about fasting. Uh, it's something that modern Christians, we've kind of, a, and I, but, well, let me say, particularly modern evangelical Christians, it's not as common for us. There are some denominations that do it a little bit more than others, but it's not as common for us. Uh, we talk a lot about maybe reading our scriptures in prayer, and those are spiritual disciplines we focus on. But if you read the Bible, fasting and prayer are connected pr- pretty, pretty often, this, this idea that we would fast and pray. And it's a regular discipline that is in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament, God sets out particular feast days and fast days um, that are appointed days that he would have the children of Israel observe. Usually these days were solemn reflections on God's deliverance of the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. But nonetheless, there was fast day, feast day. So like Day of Atonement would be a reflective day of fasting, and then you'd have Feast of Tabernacles, you know, maybe ma- massive, uh, hey, you're going to kill the fattened calf, you're going to eat, you're going to celebrate, it's going to be a great time. Um, in the New Testament, Jesus does not change this in the New Covenant uh, entirely. Of course it changes because so does the whole sacrificial system. But Jesus says uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, not if you fast or if you choose to fast, because it's not really a big deal, you might not fast or you might fast. No, he said when you fast, you should fast in this way, not like the Pharisees do when they make a great show of it for everyone, because that's their reward, but you should fast in secret. But Jesus' assumption was that Christians would fast. In fact, the only time we see in the Bible that God has said we should not fast was Jesus saying, my disciples don't fast because the bridegroom is with them. He says, so I don't ask them to fast because I'm already here, which is a pretty boss statement, I will admit, for him to say that to the Pharisees. He's like, they don't have to eat because the meal's here, baby. You know, like that's how he talked to them. That's the only time that we're not supposed to fast. He says, oh, but there will come days of fasting when he goes and before he returns where my people will long for me and they will fast in those days. Well, that's us. Now, the church continued this pattern over 2,000 years. You have, particularly in liturgical calendars, things like fasting seasons like Lent, uh, and then you'll get to the Easter season, which is feasting seasons. Um, And it kind of happens like that. We just got out of one of these, by the way. The Advent season is both. Advent's a reflective season that's more more fasting-like until it gets to Christmas, and particularly Christmas Eve, in certain liturgical calendars all the way to January 6th, it's a feast. Then it becomes the feast. So it's like the appearing of the Christ child brings the feast. Before that, you're reflective. And this is how the church calendar always worked. But my aim today is to work through the reason why we decided as an elder team to call a fast in January. Why was it prudent? What is the fasting going to require of us? And what are we praying that the Lord might do through this season of fasting? And so if you're not a member here, then this will be a little bit of a a peer into what we're doing as a church, but I'm sure that it will be beneficial to you as well. Before we jump into the passage, though, I want to pray, and I want to ask the Lord to speak to us through his word. So if you'll bow your heads, I'll begin to pray for us. Father, we thank you that your word's timeless. It is always true. And that you have promised that you, by the power of your spirit, would minister to us, be with us here, because we are gathered together in your name. 
We ask, seek, and knock. We believe that you hear our prayers. Lord, minister to us as each of us has needs. You know our needs better than we know ourselves. We pray that you would not just minister to us in some psychological sense, but that to the depths of our souls that we would find our satisfaction, our deepest satisfaction, our hopes, all of them would find their yes and amen in you. We ask, Lord, that you would speak to us through the powerful and true word that you have preserved for us and that you would give us ears to hear, Lord. We need it desperately. We reflect on the last year. We thank you for all of the many good and gracious things that you've done for us, both known and unknown. We ask that you would extend your grace to us in all the areas where we've fallen short of your glory. Thank you that, Jesus, your blood was shed and that it covers us. And as we look forward to a new year, we ask, my God, that you would help us to live our lives in a manner that pleases you, a true living sacrifice. Help us to look forward in that manner, we ask in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. So Joel, the book of Joel, my guess is that you have not read the book of Joel regularly. It isn't written on coffee mugs in your house. The book of Joel is slightly like most of the minor prophets, a little intense. Just so you know, the most common theme is the day of the Lord in the book of Joel, which is always judgment, right? That's what the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord is on the way. And that's kind of like a, you know, if we had a soundtrack to the book of Joel, it'd be in minors is all I'm saying. It's, it's a little darker. Okay. But Joel is as a prophet in the, in the country of Judah. Remember Israel at the time of King Solomon at his death, his son Rehoboam's reign led to the split of Israel as a kingdom. Ten tribes became the kingdom of Israel. Two tribes became the kingdom of Judah. The rest of your Old Testament Bible is written bouncing back and forth between kings of Judah and kings of Israel in a divided kingdom. Israel, the ten tribes, had zero righteous kings, all of them wicked, and they went to exile first. Judah lasted out longer, Jerusalem being the capital, with its temple, it lasted out longer and finally ended up falling and also going into exile. Joel is a prophet to Judah, and he's a prophet in a time when the land is devoured by locusts. The plague had been so severe that the grain offerings and the wine offerings in the temple had been cut off because of lack of resources. Not only did they not have the crops, but the country itself had become so economically depressed that they couldn't pay for ships and merchants to bring these things so that the temple could continue in its sacrifices. And Joel discerns this is a judgment from the Lord, and he calls Judah to a fast. He says, hey, we're calling a fast to the Lord. He begins the first chapter by calling attention to the elders and to the people that this famine is not just a, a mere chance happening. He's, he's saying, listen, this is not just, oh, we got some bad weather. He says, this is important of things to come. He says, this is just the tip of the iceberg. If we do not return to the Lord, the judgment's going to be way worse than a plague of locusts. He says the next, the next judgment that's coming is going to be not just on the crops, but he mentions that it's going to affect the heavens and the earth, the moon and the stars. All of that is symbolic language in the Old Testament for kings and princes will fall, meaning the whole kingdom's going down next if we don't return to the Lord. Now, I want you to know Joel, although there are some heavy things in here, is not all doom and gloom. 
Like he is not only speaking of destruction, although he doesn't mince words. If you've read some of it, you know what I mean. He writes this book because he's telling the people of Judah there's a remedy to what's going on in Judah at this time. This fast is a call, a return to God, that Joel wants to bring hope to Israel through this book. And he speaks of hope pretty regularly in the book as well. He says the events that are going to befall this land are not without a God who controls the universe. There's a providential hand. We should appeal to this God. We should appeal to the God of all things that he might relent from what is ultimately looming and bearing down on us. He's telling the people, I believe that God is merciful, and if we call upon him, he'll open up the fountains of blessing. He's already promised that he will. That's really what the book of Joel is all about. Now, to go back to the actual state of things, Israel is in a state of calamity. Really, Judah, I should say. These two tribes that are still holding out, they're in a state of calamity. But as is often the case, when nations get to their bitter ends, they rarely recognize how dire the situation is until it's basically too far gone. Some of you who have read history, you've recognized this. Like, for instance, the Roman Empire in 410, as the Visigoths are finally coming in, and they're going to finally destroy Rome. Now, Roman, the Roman Empire, in its essence, as a people, doesn't get destroyed till much later, and they, they, these people end up fleeing to Constantinople. But Rome itself, that actual city, ends up going down because the Visigoths make their way through. And when they're on their way and the barbarians are at the gates and they, they basically have thousands of people that are about to storm in, they come into the Roman Senate with all the royalty and they say, hey, we got to get out of here. We need to get everybody out. And their response is, no, just bring out some more wine. Let's continue the party. And that's what they do. Some of them get out. The only ones that actually leave are the ones who end up continuing on in Rome with Constantinople. But most of them end up dying or end up taking into captivity. Because once Nations get to certain places, they typically don't realize it's really, really bad until it's really, really late. And that's why Joel is doing something as a prophet that God calls the people of God to do across all generations. He's sounding the alarm to them. He's telling Judah, hey, the economy is really bad. It's been brought about by famine, which were brought about by locusts. But listen to me. He's saying it's so severe that now the temple sacrifices are being impacted by that. Now for you and me, we read that and we're kind of like, ah, no big deal. You know, it's like, okay, so they turn the lights off at the church. It's like, you know, that happened to me last week. That's kind of how we view it. I need you to understand, that's not how the Israelite would have viewed this. This is a massive deal. Joel would have known that the, the standing of Israel or Judah before God, their status in their covenant is tied to that temple and the priest being able to do the things in that temple that God had commanded them to do. These sacrifices being stopped is a jeopardizing of this covenant they have with God. And Joel's a faithful prophet of the Lord, so he understands there's no way this nation that is built in covenant with Yahweh can stand if this temple situation doesn't get resolved real quick. Because ultimately now we're sent, God's giving us a vision saying, your covenant's being broken with me. And he's saying so much so that I'm not going to let you keep on doing the exterior things to make you think it's all okay, I'm going to shut that down. Now, we're Christians now in the new covenant, and so our understanding of worship, it, we, don't, we don't understand it in the same way the, the old covenant did, the ideas of grain sacrifice or wine sacrifice. These aren't familiar with us because we understand our worship is in spirit and in truth and faith in the Lord Jesus. Even if you know, the lights were to go out, you and I, we're going to be okay because Jesus is our ultimate sacrifice 
you know, and, and we don't have to worry about these particular rites to be performed because Christ is our high priest who's regularly performing those on our behalf. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. He's doing all of the perfect things that the high priest is called to do every single day, and that's true for us by faith. Now, that's, that's beautiful. However, it leaves us struggling to find parallels when we actually do have parallels with some of the Old Testament. We need to remember the New Testament tells us you and I, even though there no longer is a temple that we all pilgrimage to, you and I have become that temple. And that we have become that temple upon faith in Jesus Christ when the Holy Spirit fills us, just like the Holy Spirit filled the temple. The Holy Spirit filled us and we became the temple of God. Now what this means is that we too, this temple can still fall into disrepair, not physically, but spiritually, and our worship can still be hindered. You get passages like this in the New Testament. Like here's one for husbands. I'll just scare the husbands real quick. <laughs> Book of First Peter says that you should live with your wife in an understanding way and that you should give deference to her. And then it says, lest your prayers be hindered which that's not something we usually, like, wait a minute, nothing hinders our prayers. We come before the Father by the blood of Jesus. Nothing can keep us out. We come before him boldly. That's all true, except that the Bible tells us that they could be hindered still. Like by mistreating your wife, right? That's a weird thing that we have to grapple with. What does that mean exactly? Well, we're going to get into it. We need to consider how the effects of the world around us can plague the worship of the church, Big C itself. How can how can we also fall into disrepair in our worship? Well, I want to read Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. This will be very familiar to you, but it will give us kind of a groundwork to be laid here. Romans 12, 1 through 2, Paul speaking to the church at Rome. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, now this is about to be all Old Testament language, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, just to be clear, Paul's not saying, he's not advocating for human sacrifice here. He's talking about something entirely different. Uh, the entirety of our lives will be a spiritual act of worship. Now watch this, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. Another translation says the pattern of this world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. Now here's some more Old Testament language. What is good? and acceptable, and perfect. So the sacrificial worship that you and I are meant to be by the way we live our lives can be discerned through the mind of Christ. We will know what is good, acceptable, and perfect in the way that we live our lives. This means, in the negative sense, that if our minds are being conformed to the pattern of this world and are not being transformed by the Spirit of God, you and I cannot discern what acceptable worship is. We lose that ability. And therefore, acceptable worship itself becomes hindered. So now you can see what Peter means when he says, if you be treating your wife in this way, it's probably because your mind has been conformed to the pattern of the world and you don't understand what acceptable worship is anymore, so you begin to accept a worldly form that is not a godly form. Now, the last four years or so, and I use four years, it's a little bit arbitrary, but, you know, I just go back to, like, slightly before COVID. Feels like a good place to start. Um, have been so tumultuous in our country that it's not possible for me to recount the number of ways 
that our society has proven itself to be wayward from the Lord. I mean, I could have had a montage video made. It would have just depressed us all, okay? Probably would have made us not feel like we could bring the kids in here anymore, even though I'd be showing you like Nickelodeon. You know, it's gotten bad. It's gotten bad. And my guess is the thought that judgment looms over our nation is something that you may have asked yourself in recent times. Now, whether or not you believe that or you think that I'm a kook, my guess is that if you were honest, it's probably crossed your mind even if you rejected it. Even if you thought, nah. It's probably crossed your mind like, maybe God's not pleased with us. You know? You have, you've at least passed by the bookshelf and you looked over at like a Left Behind series and you thought, well. And then you're like, never mind. And you kept going. I'm just saying, some of you may be all in on that and I'm not against you. And some of you think it's totally crazy, but you passed by it and thought, plausible. You know, like you, you just thought about it some more. And here's my question. My question is not to lay down certainties. My question is, what should we do about that? What would God have us do about that sense and that feeling? Because to simply say that we ought to do nothing about it is to neglect the duty that clearly we have before God. And here's my contention. If the church is truly the salt of the earth, the preservative of the earth, that's what salt does, then one of the first and foremost tasks for us to do is to interrogate as to whether or not the salt has lost its savor. The salt has lost its saltiness. The first thing you do when you start smelling something in your garage is check to see whether the freezer has begun to lose its electricity. Something wrong with the deep freeze? Because the things are rotting. The thing that's preserving the meat has shut down. The salt has lost its savor, the thing that preserves. Another question might be like this. Has our worship, like those in Judah in Joel's day, been hindered in any way unbeknownst to us? Has our fidelity to Christ, offering our whole self to him in spirit and in truth, been hindered unbeknownst to us? Has our mind been conformed to the pattern of this world so as to prevent us from discerning what kind of life actually does please the Lord? Like, is it possible that you and I have gotten to the place where we accept things and therefore we believe God must accept them? That's a bad litmus test because oftentimes in the Bible, what you'll find is what man thinks is totally fine. God comes in and says, it's not totally fine. Even religious leaders in the Bible The Pharisees think it's totally fine to treat the poor in a certain way. Jesus shows up and says, I detest you. You're of your father, the devil. And these are the religious people. And they've decided this is the rule on how we treat poor people. And he says, no, it's not how you're going to treat them. So it's a bad litmus test to say if I'm okay with it, if society's okay with it, most likely God's okay with it. God's not like us. He is not like man. He's not like our ways. He doesn't think like us. We wake up and we have have weird jealousies. We have weird... uh, fears. God never wakes up scared. He never wakes up feeling like his throne's in question. He has a totally other. It's what the word holy means. He is set apart. And so is it possible that we've lost the ability to discern because we've decided that a collective wisdom of the world is what our God should be formed in the image of? In other words, if our minds are conformed to the world's pattern, you and I inevitably will lose our ability to discern right from wrong. We begin to accept the unacceptable in our own lives and in the lives of our brothers and sisters. And like Corinth, if you ever wondered, how did Corinth get so bad where they were like celebrating these weird romantic relations inside of families, getting uh, inebriated at the, at the 
you know, communion table. It's like, man, church got a little weird. How did that happen? This is how that happens. This is how that happens. You start to lose your ability to discern what's actually acceptable. And this leads us to our fast. Now, the most prominent way that you and I are being conformed to the pattern of the world in our day is through something very innocuous. It's through our dependence on a very small quadrilateral device that is near you now. Now, don't write me off yet. I'm not ashamed of what I'm saying, but I know you're thinking, aren't you a little young to be that fundamentalist? Like, you're waiting for me to say some other things. And, uh, you know, just give me a chance. All of the Old Testament is filled with these sensory liturgies that God uses to form the hearts and minds of Israel to his will. Remember, if you read the Old Testament, a lot of times people do the Bible in a year and they kind of get stuck in Leviticus. It's because it's filled with these liturgies that are kind of foreign to us. Things like cleansing basins, vestments that are worn. But all of that is meant to communicate in tangible terms to your five senses, the holiness of God, the contamination of sin. There's these movements that are required in worship from the outer courts to the inner courts to the inner chambers to the most holy place. And it's all meant to communicate physically to you the nearness of God, that God draws nearer as the sacrifices are made and the atonement is made, God draws nearer to you, right? The presence of God becomes nearer. The grain offerings, the wine offerings, these are actual tastes. You taste something which is meant to communicate that God alone can satiate the cravings of the human soul, the human person. The lampstands are to visual, they're, they're to reveal that only God brings light to shine light. That light both exposes, but it also guides you. It's why you use a light uh, in surgery, but you also use a flashlight to get to your car at night, right? There, there's not, it's not always just, uh, hey, you're exposed in the light. Ah, you know, I need to put on clothes or, you know, that kind of thing. It also guides you. God is that light. And I can go on and on with this. The, the reading of God's word auditory in the first five books, why was that a part of the liturgies? Because it resonated with the people of God that God's voice was authoritative, like a king giving an edict. And they read it aloud. When God has spoken, it is so. And most importantly, this is what God was doing in the Old Testament. He was saying, this is who I am. And you are my children. This is who I want you to be. This is how you ought to be formed to be like this. That's how the Old Testament works. And it works with sensory liturgies, these things that are really tangible. Remember they go through with incense into the temple. Why are you doing this? Everything, taste, touch, smells, sights, sounds, all of it was meant to communicate to you, this is who God is, this is who you're meant to be. Now, the pattern of the world, Paul tells us, ruled by the prince of the power of the air, Paul tells us, uses the same exact tactics in its inverse. Liturgies are created to form people. And the primary liturgical tool that is in the hands of the enemy today is that device that you and I cannot live without. And here's what I'm telling you. I'm not saying that to your shame. I'm saying like, it's just really true. Like you, the reason I say that most of you, there are some of you who can, might be able to dodge this, but most of you can't live without this because your jobs are connected to it. You know, like you're, you're, you would lose your job if you went in and said, hey, 
I'm going to Church of Providence. We're doing away with the phones this January. Your boss will be like, I'm doing away with you this January. You know, it's, that's real. <laughs> you can't pay your bills with it for some of you. Some of you, especially the younger crowd, it's like the only way that you eat. I don't know if you've ever cooked. Like you just, this is how you eat. Um, but here's what I want to do. I want to just, if a moment, if we reflect about it, we can see the danger of this because it becomes a primary tool, really like a, uh, a Swiss army knife of life. Where do you get all your news about the world? Now, that may seem like no big deal. And you're like, yeah, but I get many different sources. Hear me. You go to one place to get all your information about how you view the entirety of the world. One place. It's in your pocket. What about your fashion trends? Some of you, you ladies and guys, for that matter, fashionable guys, right? You think, man, I bought this jacket because I've been looking at it. This is my, this is my trend. I want you to understand something. It is not your trend. It is a trend that was chosen for you, advertised to you. Algorithms were used to teach you why you wanted this and why that jacket meant so much to you, why it speaks of your personality. And it took them 18 months to regularly feed it into your feed until you decided that's who you are. You're that kind of jacket person. And I know, especially if you're younger, you're mad at me right now. Don't take my individuality. I'm just the message bearer. They have profiles of you that are more detailed than you could ever imagine. This is no no conspiracy. By the way, uh, one of the major tech companies, Netflix, put out a documentary about this very thing. They know the flicker rate of your eyes when you look at certain things, when you're shopping. Those algorithms are recreated and sent to you to sell you certain products, to make you that kind of person. I'm a country music guy because my daddy was. Like, well, that may be true to an extent. But I bet you if you give it 18 months, they might be able to change you into another kind of guy. At least maybe maneuver you a little bit. Maybe shape you. In fact, they know the areas that you might not be moved on, so they don't even try there. They go other areas. And your profile is sold to companies that you might have fashion trends that have been curated for you. What about your desires? You think you have things that you really want. I wanted that, you know, kids, you know, just got done with Christmas. Is it possible that that Christmas list may have been curated too? Because every time your kid went into that garage and put on YouTube kids, there were advertisements that were woven in there to tell them that that Nintendo Switch was what they had to have. Didn't even know a Nintendo Switch existed until you two kids told him, and then they must have it. I only tell you because I know from experience, Jonas has one now, didn't intend on that. Mario Kart's still fun, I'm not even against it. I'm just telling you, there are, there's more playing behind the scenes. What about your plans for the future, your vacation plans? I've always wanted to go to, you fill in the blank. No, you didn't even know that place existed until 15 of your friends went and posted their pictures online, and you were jealous of them, and you wanted to go. You're going to go to that place because it's the best whatever. Intrigue, gossip, celebrity updates. What about music? Music the most powerful since the beginning of time, the most powerful liturgical tool in the world is music, and where do you get yours? Now, I'm saying this, it's like, not like this is new, but I want you to understand that um, even uh, 300 years ago, maybe 200 years ago, maybe less, you know where most music came from? You're in it. You think that's crazy. That's fact. Where did most music come from? It came from the church. Not anymore. 
Now I can keep going. What about your advice on who you should love and who you should hate? What about your, all your opinions on foreign conflicts? Where do you go to validate your information? You go to fact-checking sites, huh? Who owns those fact-checking sites? Which might be a good Google search. But then if you Google it, who owns Google? What are their interests in you? They used to have a clause, I think, that was like, do not be evil. And I'm not even kidding. Google had a clause in their bylaws, like, do not be evil, which seems like solid. I think that's a solid clause in the bylaw. The weirdest thing is when you take that out, and they did, like three years ago. So like, they decided, never mind, it's easier to do business if you don't have that clause. I'm not even kidding. I don't think you can Google that, but there's some other engines out there that might lead you that. Where do you go to satisfy your lusts? To confirm or assuage your fears? To communicate your hopes and dreams? How about vent your frustrations and your hatred? Soothe your loneliness or your dread? Attain your acclaim or approval from the world? To confirm your suspicions or your doubts? I could keep going, but you're going to notice that many of us go to a small little device that's right now really close to you. It may have already alerted you while I was talking to stop listening to me that other things are more pressing. And I want to tell you something because, again, I told you not to write me off. I'm not bringing up something that's new. This issue is an ancient issue. The only difference that you and I are facing today, and I mean this if you're the young, young person in the room and, and you actually know more about technology than I do, or if you're an older person in the room and you're like, these kids are, you know, they're doomed. <laughs> that's why I still have a rotary phone, you know. I want you to hear me. The only difference that we face today is that the ready-made availability to turn away from God and towards idols is so much, it, it, it's so much larger of an issue to contend with. It's in your pocket. You don't have to travel to an idol temple to worship idols. You just, they're being sold to you. They're buzzing you in, in your pocket. It's so ready-made. And so, as a church, we said, we need to call a fast together. And we've specified media as a target for this reason, and, and we're, we're leaving this open for every family to decide. We're not saying, hey, it needs to be this thing. Some of you may, may be social media, and some of you may be like me, and social media is not a big deal because I wrote a book about it and then quit it. You know, um, I, I don't really on social media that much, so it's not as big of a deal. I don't have to worry about not getting on Facebook, but, f- but it might be movies. It might be uh, just your screen time in general. Uh, but the reason that we chose this is that I want to contend that, like Judah in Joel's day, We have to reckon with the fact that God has given us a gift in the mind of Christ. And that gift is under attack. We are being tempted to trade the mind of Christ for a different pattern of thinking, a different set of liturgies that are forming us. And it's only through counterattack that we can reassert ourselves. The Bible says you and I are meant to be under the compulsion of one thing and one thing alone. The love of Christ through the spirit of God controls us is what Paul says. That's what compels us. That's what governs us. And as it stands, there's, there, there is an enemy, Satan is real, seeking to compel you to be under a different set of priorities and ideals. And it's only with a clear mind, the mind of Christ, that we can resume a life of worship that's unfettered from the snares of the world. You see, oftentimes when we get in times like this, it feels really helpless But I will tell you that it's not for us to simply sit back. We are called to act, but we do not act of our own accord. We do not act in our own name, and we certainly do not act rashly. That's why we're fasting. We beseech the king for his orders. 
what would you have us do? Because we do not live in our own name. Paul tells us, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live to the Son of God. We have a king, and everything we do is in his name. So we beseech him, what would you have us do? Now, what kind of fast does the Lord desire? Now that I have like, I don't know, five minutes. Let's read through these verses quickly. Not all of them, we're just going to read a handful of them. Verse 12, Joel chapter 2 says, Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your hearts and not your garments. Let me read that again. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Joel tells us the fast that God delights in is not iconoclastic. It's not, let's, uh, this is why we're not going to, in January, you know, at our members meeting, bring all of our iPhones to the middle of the sanctuary, light them on fire, and take pictures of the smoke to see if we could see demon faces in them, okay? Because the fast God desires is an inward rending. It's not a rending of clothes. Remember whenever uh, the Jews, particularly the Pharisees during Jesus' time, during his trial, they get really angry because he won't give them answers that they like, so they rend their garments. It was an outward way of showing grief, and that's how a lot of the leaders of the day, the kings of the day, would show their grief if they were fasting. If they were brokenhearted, they rend their clothes. God says, stop making this outward show of it. Rend your hearts. Let your hearts be rent. This month, as the Lord sees fit, you and I will be made aware of areas of our hearts that have been knitted together, unbeknownst to us, with the world. Patterns of the world. We haven't even seen it happening, but it's been happening. And the only way forward is to allow the Lord to do the surgery of tearing these things off our hearts. Our hearts will be rent in the process. But like a good surgeon, the only answer to the tumor is to excise it. Because if you leave it, and if you think it's no big deal, I'm not really in pain right now, give it time, it will grow and take over. And the pain of the latter will be much greater than the surgery that needs to happen now. To please the Lord in a fast, we have to lay ourselves open before him. We have to let God deal with the thing that he really cares about dealing with, namely the thing that you and I care most about protecting, our hearts. It's why religion is so powerful, and I don't mean true religion, I mean false religion is so powerful because we have a tendency to make deals with God so that he'll stay away from our hearts. I'll do things better that you would have me do. The Pharisees, I'll wash my hands. I'll make sure that I tithe out of my spice rack. I'll do all of these things, but don't address my heart. And the problem is that God is after the heart. He's totally uninterested in those things. Let me rephrase. He knows that those things follow the heart. And so if he deals with just those things, the heart is deceitfully wicked and it will reproduce new weeds and new fruit elsewhere. So he goes directly to the source. He wants to do heart work. And so any fast, no matter how severe, no matter how sacrificial, it doesn't matter how austere your fast is, if it leaves your heart untouched, it will not be a fast that honors the Lord. We ought to expect to be changed, and we ought to expect that that change may be uncomfortable. Matthew Henry said this, If the solemnities of our fasting, though frequent, long, and severe, Do not serve to put an edge upon devout affections and to quicken prayer and to increase godly sorrow and to alter the temper of our minds and the course of our lives for the better. They do not at all answer the intention and God will not accept them as performed to him. I loved that quote because he says there's a way to perform a fast to yourself and think it's in service to God. 
The Pharisees did this. They fasted and they made sure to go out and look really hungry and their faces downcast. People say, oh man, what's wrong with you? I have been fasting for three days. You know, that's what they did. It was to them. They wanted no, they had no interest in God dealing with their hearts. Number two, the Lord draws us near in a fast. Verse 13, the second half. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. The call of fasting goes out to everyone. But the requirement has a direction. The fast is a call to return to the Lord. There's a, there's a disperse. It's like a shotgun blast to everybody that will hear to, to call the fast. But everyone's going in one direction, and that is to the Lord. To disabuse yourself of every worldly and trivial pursuit. Throw all the luggage of your life overboard to make the boat go faster, to get back home. Fasting reacquaints us with hunger, and not just physical hunger when we fast from food, but the other cravings and desires that you and I have. It acquaints you with them when you cut off these false substitute sources. And you start realizing, man, I, I really do crave approval. I do, I do, I do crave acclaim. I crave peace. I, I crave all of these things. And I've been going in all these other directions, all these wells that don't have water. So fasting calls us to refuse the substitutes to seek the one true source. And you guys know what I mean here. I wish I had more time, but you fast from food and then you know, get about 11 o'clock and you're hangry. And so you're like, either I can like ask the Lord to help me with my, my hangry attitude, or I can just go to Starbucks because that's technically not food and just get like seven espressos. And then I'll be, my heart rate will like a gerbil's heart rate, but I'll, but I'll be, but I, but I won't be as mean. That's a substitute. Okay. That's a substitute. And that's a funny one, but we all have them. Number three, the Lord calls us to pray when we fast. Verse 17, verse 17 says, between the vestibule and the altar, let the priest and the minister of the Lord weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage or approach in a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Pray for God's deliverance. Pray for God's protections. Although we may be living in grave times, and who knows what, what befalls us ahead, friends, you, all, you can be in the ark of heaven if you will but enter it by faith. You are the apple of God's eye if you will but receive that station by faith. Call upon God and seek him for your welfare and not just yours only but for your neighbors as well. You are a kingdom of priests, the New Testament says. What do priests do? They intercede on behalf of the people. You can pray for your non-believing neighbors that God might meet them too kind of fast that delights the Lord includes prayer, it must include prayer. We must align our desires of our hearts with the will of God and then chase God in prayer for those things. Not try to align God with our desires and then hope it works out. As I was growing up, um, my house, which is um, my house that I grew up in, the area is not as rural as it was when I was growing up. Um, but especially when I was in kindergarten, most of our bus route was in uh, rocky roads, like uh, not paved roads. And so, you know, it was, it was a little bit of a difficult second half of your trip because you'd be sleeping as a kid. And, you know, bus drivers, bless 
God bless bus drivers, what they have to deal with. So I really think our bus driver would get us back by letting us fall asleep and then just hit those potholes because then your little head goes, you know, and then you wake up. And, uh, but, but one of the things that my dad used to do when we were growing up is he'd pretty much let, it, let us play outside. It was a little bit of a different time. We had a, a larger neighborhood. Houses weren't right next to each other, so a little bit like maybe like five-acre lots or whatever. And, and, and it was pretty big. And then we had a pipeline that you would drive down this pipeline on your four-wheelers or whatever, and he'd just say, go play, come home when it's dark. And that was the rule, come back at home at dark. Um, and, of course, like kids always do, we would try to push that to the nth degree. So it's like how dark. And the reason I mentioned that it was rural is we didn't have street lights. So, you know, once it got dark, it got pretty dark. It's like you were riding around on a sidewalk, and then, you know, Andy Griffith comes by and says, well, barn, you want to take these kids back to the house? You know, like that's not how it happened. You know, there were more mostly just dogs, and they chase you, you know, in your bike. My dad, um, and some of you may have this, a similar story with your grandparent or father, could whistle And he just had this whistle that was painful if you were near it. He could whistle so loud that I would I would legitimately plug my ears when I was standing next to him. And that is when you when he would whistle when they started to get too dark. It wouldn't matter where you were in the whole neighborhood, you heard it. And I knew I'm in trouble now because he would only whistle when it had gotten too dark, and he was getting upset like they're not already back. And when you heard the whistle, it was literally like I was an animal. Rise up, you know. like a lemur in the grass. I got to go, guys. You know, you start riding back. And I was thinking of that when I was reading this passage. Like, what's the best way to define fasting? The calling of a fast is the father's call back home. It's like the whistle. You've been out too far. You've been out too late. It's time to come home. And there's a seriousness to the call. And sometimes the fast is like the journey home. It's not an, an easy journey. And it's not an easy journey, not because it's, uh, arduous necessarily in distance. You see, that's what we think. I'm too far from God. And it's going to be way too hard to come back. It's, it's not exactly how it works with Christians because it wasn't on your merit that you ever got there in the first place. No, the reason it feels that way is most of the time it's because we fear the discipline of our father because when we hear the whistle, we know our actions have not been in line with what he had told us. And we're going to have to wrestle with that, we think, when we get back. Not the distance that gets us. It's when we got to stare down the king's face and the king happens to be dad. And so we start thinking things. We start thinking, maybe if I just, I don't know, stayed out here and never went home, I could figure this out. I mean, my dad doesn't think I'm tough, but I am. Maybe I'm strong enough to face this down. But our father's wiser than us. He whistles us home. He knows when the storms are brewing. He knows as the sun sets, the darkness looms, that in his house we will be safe. And returning home is to trust the father who signals to us that our only hope is in him and in his household. And when he whistles us home, what we grapple with is our fleshly tendency to trust our own ideas and forbid his call. That's the wrestle. So how do we get beyond it? And I'll close with this thought. Verses 18 through 27 are God's answer to Judah. And that's why I wanted to tell you Joel's not all heavy. Let me just read to you verse 18. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. And the Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I'm sending you grain, wine, and oil. The rest of the verses begin to lay out for you God's abundant answer to their fast. As they return, it's like the prodigal son story. Prodigal son's expecting a real tongue lashing from dad about what he just did 
with the inheritance. Instead, the father grabs him, kisses him, puts a ring on his finger, a robe on his shoulders, and says, we're throwing a party for my son. He was lost, now he's found, he was dead, now he's alive. That's the gospel message. It's that when you return, you see the fast, most of this battle's happening for you here. It's a battle for your mind about what you fear most. What we should fear most is being outside the father's household in the dark, not having to face our dad at the dinner table with a warm coat wrapped around us as he talks to us like a father and only a father can. You see, we need to be reminded that the table's already set. I'm not speaking to you about a false hope here. I'm talking to you about promises. The table's already set. The feast is already set. The food's on the table. God, the father, whistles you home. The promises have found their yes and their amen in Christ Jesus. It's not on the basis of you and me. That feast will happen, and your seat is there. Will you fill it? Providence, my prayer this January is that you and I, even if it gets to be a tumultuous year, where will your neighbors go to find hope? My prayer is that they know that's, that you and the church is a place that they should go to find hope that you and I this January will develop a vision. And young people, I want you to hear me. I'm not going to say just a vision for our children, for our children's children's children. A vision for God's blessing that if he chooses to tarry, that our lives will be meaningful to build something that will bless them in the name of the Lord for generations to come. And that he has promised to do so if we will hear the whistle and come home. He will do the work. He has said he will. Do we believe him? My prayer is that he would give us that vision. And there's four major prayers that I'll be praying, and you can write them out if you want. If not, that's okay. Pray for the mercy of God. God, be merciful to me. Be merciful to my family, to our church, to our neighbors, to my nation. Don't deal with us according to our sin, but according to your great righteousness. Number two, the protection of God. God, protect me, my family, my church, my neighbors, my nation. Keep us from harm that seeks to befall us. Number three, the blessing of God. You know that's not prosperity theology, by the way? Like the Bible calls us to believe for and pray for God to bless us. That's what it means to be a child of God. Sometimes we go too far. We're just thinking, I don't pray for the blessing of God because the cross is enough. It's like it is enough. And you have a good father too. Did you know that? Loves you. And, and you know what? Sometimes good dads say, eh, you don't really need like your 17th cookie tonight. But... To ask for dessert is a different, a different animal altogether. So pray for the blessing of God. Something like, God bless me, my family, our church, our neighbors, our nation. Upon our return to you, fulfill all of the good promises you've already given in your word according to your good character. Because only from your hand comes every good and perfect gift, and so we seek it from you. And then lastly, but not least, the direction of God. Pray that God would direct you, lead you, teach you, help you to discern what you might do, how you might live. You know, this crazy thought that maybe God has a will for your life. Wild, right? I know I'm getting, I'm getting out there. That God has a purpose for you and that's why you're alive. It's not because you ate leafy greens yesterday. I'm not against you, by the way. If you're doing a diet thing, God bless you in the name of the Lord. It's a good thing, okay? Bodily training has some value. But that's not why you're alive, you're alive because God in his sovereignty has chosen to put you here for a reason, for a purpose that he has for you. So it might be a good idea to get the spark notes of that and ask him about it. What would you have me do, Lord? Pray for us. Pray as a church. Help us to be led. 
And just like I told the 1045 or the nine o'clock service, most of all is to remember that when we're praying these things, all of these promises have already found their yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we confidently pray them. We pray them because we're heard in the name of the Son. When he said it was finished, and then he opened and the temple, the temple veil was torn, he was saying, Go on in. And then he actually tells his disciples, ask, pray, seek, knock. He tells a parable about an old woman who bugs a king keep a- and keeps asking this king for respite and annoys the king so much that the king goes, fine, you annoy me. Give her whatever she wants. And then God doesn't say, and then that poor woman died on the way home because she was so pitiful. He says, that's how I want you to pray. Have you thought about that? He said, that's what I wish you'd do. I wish you'd bug me and bug me and bug me. I wish you'd keep asking me. I wish you wouldn't always just say, well, maybe it's the sovereignty of God that I don't have this answer. Maybe sometimes it is, friends, but maybe sometimes you should pray. And then you should endure, and you should guess what? In the morning again, you should pray again. And then when it feels like you're really, really hopeless, you should remember the Old Testament saints, and you should pray again. You should remember Abraham when he turned 99 years old, and then he had Isaac, and how when he stopped believing that God was going to be true to his promise, that's whenever Ishmael was born because he tried to take it into his own hands. Friends, sometimes we give up not because God has not been true to his promise, but because we have been un- unfaithful to our God. He's already told us these things are true. We should pray and hold God to his character because the word tells us his word never returns null or void. He never goes against his character. The most effectual prayers in your Bible are prayers from saints who say, God, do this according to your character, for your namesake, because you promised it, so please do it. And God loves those kinds of prayers because he says, you know what I promised, but you also know who I am. Let me pray for us. Father, I wish we had so much more time, but I thank you for the time you've given. As we begin to prepare to take of your table, prepare our hearts Help us this January for everyone who will be partaking in this fast to not rend just our outward garments, our outward actions, but help our hearts to be laid bare before you. Help us as we take of your table, Lord, to really reflect on the last year, but to look forward with hope because we're your children. God, as we take of the bread and of the juice, we ask, my God, would you satiate these cravings in us and teach us how to come back to your dinner table and stop going to be feeding with the pigs. Help us to invite some of our friends to the table of the Father. Help us, my God, to worship you in spirit and in truth. Let the meditations of our heart and the words of our lips unite as we sing to you. We love you, Lord, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.